This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In his new book, The Creative Destruction of Medicine, How the Digital Revolution Will Create Better Healthcare, Eric Topol argues that medicine is set to undergo its biggest shakeup in history, pushed by demanding consumers and the availability of game-changing technology. Topol, a cardiologist, director of the Scripps Translational Science Institute, and co-founder of the West Wireless Health Institute in La Jolla, California, was recently interviewed for Knowledge at Wharton by C. William Hansen III, a professor of anesthesiology and critical care and director, surgical intensive care, at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Hansen's latest book is titled Smart Medicine, How the Changing Role of Doctors Will Revolutionize Healthcare, published in 2011. So um, I thought it might be worthwhile just quickly to give you sort of a sense of uh, who I am and where I'm coming from to tell you that I'm an anesthesiologist and an intensivist, uh, primarily surgical intensivist, and serve as uh, our chief medical information officer here at Penn. So I've got some interests that will skew in that direction, but I, I love the title of your book. There are many on both sides of this question. Some would say that uh, the creative destruction of medicine is a pretty scary concept, and I think there would be plenty of us that would agree that something drastic needs to happen. Um, you're obviously in the, uh, the latter I'm in, I'm in the believing that something drastic needs to happen. And I think it can happen, it will happen, and I'm hoping that we can, you know, help uh, facilitate or catalyze that. Yeah, and I think you've been in a uh, prominent role in terms of uh, questioning uh, traditional um, medical concepts. Uh, maybe you could describe for the audience um, what your personal practices and, and some of the uh, issues in which you've engaged uh, the traditional medical establishment in the past? Well, you know, I, what I've done to try to change medicine in, in many different ways, I mean, you know, I did a bunch of research on how to come up with better therapies, and those were, you know, in large trials, even as large as 40-some thousand patients with heart attack, but also, you know, diverse ways, such as um, in starting a new medical school um, and, uh, you know, a very innovative curriculum, uh, challenging a uh, drug safety issue, which was really uh, important uh, for the public. Uh, you know, so I've had different experiences over the years, uh, but but really, really, what was changing for me was that, for the first time, recognizing you know some four or five years ago that we had this new emerging capability of digitizing human beings, which we've never had before. Everybody's used to digitizing books and. Uh, movies and newspapers, whatever, but when you digitize a human being by knowing their sequence of their DNA, their, uh, all their physiologic metrics like their vital signs and many others, and all their anatomy by imaging, this comes together as a unique uh, Kairos, you know, the supreme opportune moment in medicine. Well, so that's, yeah, that's a nice lead-in. I want to return to that uh, digitization because that's something that I'm dealing with with... Um with our IT systems, as uh, you know, I'm sure you are, um, uh, what to do with the digitized information, how much of it to keep, how to analyze it. But I wanted to come back to one of your, um, uh, well, to come back to your title, and again, uh, to one of the uh, gentlemen who endorsed the book, uh, Clayton Christensen. 
So he um, he has written a couple of books, as you know, the uh, Innovator's Dilemma and the I think the Innovator's Prescription. That's I, right. Yeah. Three three books on innovation, and he's world renowned for his uh, insights and you know leadership in the space of innovation. Uh, but just a little bit different uh, between the, the, between us. Yeah, maybe you could elaborate on that. Yeah, I mean, I look to him as you know one of the real uh, guiding lights of innovation. He's not a physician. Uh, in the book that he did on innovative innovators prescription, he worked with uh, a young physician, Jason Wang, uh, who's now out at Stanford. Yeah, but yep. oh, good, good. Yeah. So the the difference though is, you know, I'm coming at it from almost three decades of within the medical profession, and I'm not calling for an innovation. He calls it disruptive innovation. Yeah, but I imagine many of the uh, the listening audience here at uh, Wharton will be familiar with that term. Yeah. But, uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm looking at a much more radical thing. So this is like taking um, what, what Clayton has uh, popularized an order of magnitude more uh, in terms of, uh, you know, how transformative this can be, this whole ability to digitize human beings. Right. So he's talked about in, in his work um, uh, the digitization of the music industry, for example, and uh, the film industry, and um, you know, recognizing that you're dealing much, at a much deeper level with the, the medical side of thing, but um, how um, uh, uh, products enter the market um, at the low end and end up uh, disrupting and taking over sort of higher end products. And for me and uh, you at um, academic medical centers, where we think we're um, providing state of the art care, I wonder. You know, to what extent uh, we're likely to be um, disrupted and potentially made um, uh, irrelevant by uh, radical disruptions like the kind you're talking about, and how you might uh, think about that. Yeah, no, I think that um, the medical community has been incredibly resistant to change. You know, that's across not just academic medical centers, but you know, uh, the whole continuum of medicine practicing physicians. But there is a consumer-driven healthcare revolution out there when each individual has access to, you know, on their smartphone, all their vital sign and, and, and relevant data, you know, glucose, uh, you, know, you know, whatever you can think of. It's on their phone. They have their ability to tap into their DNA sequence and all of their omics. And... Uh, of course, that's superimposed on this digital infrastructure that each person has now with a social network, with, you know, broadband, uh, Internet access, and you know, pervasive connectivity. You, when, you're, when you combine all this, this is um, an empowerment, the likes of which we've never seen for consumers. And so if the medical community doesn't wake up, uh, this, it's going to be completely driven by consumers, because, you know, there's a lot of problems right now. In recent months, there's been articles published in top-tier journals in medicine. Like, for example, should, should patients have access to their laboratory tests? JAMA. I said, how can you even ask that question? There's the AMA that's lobbying the FDA and the government that consumers should not have access to their DNA unless it's mediated through a physician which is amazing to me since the AMA did its own survey of 10,000 physicians and 90% said they were totally uncomfortable in dealing with any genomic data. (laughs) 
So we got these kind of problems going on right now where, you know, there's a real irony of emerging uh, data, which should be the ownership, the right of the individual, and the medical community is basically suppressing, you know, overall suppressing that from happening. Yeah, so uh, interestingly, my father was a um, was a primary care uh, physician and internist who, um, whose uh, medical records were uh, in his office in a file cabinet. Um, he would uh, scribble some notes during the... Um, the patient uh, visit during the exam and then uh, dictate his notes into um, a dictaphone, which would be transcribed into uh, one of some onion skin uh, paper that the uh, the file clerk would then put in the in the in the file drawer, and that was his his medical record and his property, and that's what he sold when he sold his practice. And uh, I think what we're looking at now, and I again curious as to your sense of this is a world in which uh, patients are going to be accumulating their own data on uh, smart healthcare data and smartphones and devices in their home, and and, uh, and they'll share it with uh, health systems and providers as they see fit. Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, along that the lines of what I was just commenting about, there was also in an internal medicine is should patients have a right to access their office notes mm-hmm. from their doctor. And, of course, even that's being debated. This is crazy stuff. But uh, I do think that um, there's a change, uh, a true uh, radical change that's emerging in medicine, which is that all this uh, – uh, can be digitized, whether it's medical records or all the things that we've been discussing. And this is um, the the property, the rightful property of the individual. It's it's about all their health. And, you know, I think that that's something that uh, as we go forward from birth or even from, you know, the, the fetal stage, uh, from, from um, you know, the womb to tomb, that's going to be the story going forward. And we've got to, you know, reset for that. Yeah, and so um, coming back to this, uh, accumulating the information on your smartphone, you give several examples of the book of how you've not only been a, a, a physician, a provider on the one hand, but you've actually acted in the role of that smart, uh, emancipated patient. Maybe you could tell us about some of those um, experiment might be the wrong word, but experiences you've had with that. Uh, when I worked myself as a patient? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, it's really enlightening. So, you know, when I was in their very early testing of genome-wide scans, and I, you know, in the book talked about how I, I, I did this too early before a lot of the glitches uh, came out mm-hmm. uh, were, were identified. And so, you know, here I am, been a cardiologist for a couple of decades, and I get my, you know, genome-wide scan, and the first thing I look up is, you know, what is my risk of heart attack? And I see 102%. <laughs> I said, oh, my gosh, I got even a, greater than 100%. How can you have greater than 100% risk of a heart attack? And I, I, I wrote in the book, you know, I, and it's true. I called my wife and said, I don't think I'll be, be making make it at home for dinner. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that was a mistake. I do have an increased risk for heart attack, but, you know, they didn't have their algorithms and their predictive analytics stuff ready. Um, so, fortunately, it didn't roll out to the to the public. And that's, uh, I think, underscores a key principle is all these things, whether they be, uh, you know, apps and, and uh, add-ons to smartphones with biosensors or whether they're, you know, genomic uh, assays, they've got to be, you know, all the kinks have got to be worked out before we have a mass exposure. 
and so I, some of the experiences I've had also with the portable ultrasound, the V-scan, where I had this you know, horrendous leak of my mitral valve, and I thought I was going to have to sign up for open-heart surgery, and I had a sleepless night. And again, it was a software glitch. But both these happened because I was you know, the earliest, too early access to the technology. Yeah, well, I want to actually return to that in just one second. But the one other thing that uh, I thought was kind of amusing, and maybe this is inappropriate to get into your bedroom, but wasn't there a situation where your wife was monitoring your brainwaves to see if you were asleep or not? Yeah. Uh, right. Um, that actually got uh, picked up a lot. Uh, I was Full surprised. Full right? <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, the Zio the device is a, is a brainwave sensor. You know, you wear a, a, a forehead headband. And it gets your brainwaves every minute while you're sleeping, and it can project it onto a clock so that anybody walks in, looks at the clock, knows, you know, what phase of sleep you're in. And so my wife, who tends to be a night owl, you know, she comes in soon after I started monitoring my sleep uh, phases, and she looks at the clock, and, she, you know, she says, Eric, I know you're awake, <laughs> and I want to talk. And so that, talk about a, a wake-up call. That really, um, you know, showed me that this is not just monitoring sleep, um, and it was really quite amusing. And uh, you know, when you start monitoring things like that, uh, all sorts of unpredictable things can happen. Right. So that goes to the question I wanted to follow up with. Um, the the uh, situation I deal with in in my administrative role is doctors essentially saying you're jamming too much of this stuff down our throats too quickly. There's too much change. We're not, you know, the, 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 this new technology or this new uh, approach to the EMR um, isn't ready for prime time yet. Uh, and, I'm, you know, uh, as, as, as you talk about this in the role of a patient, you're seeing or experiencing potentially the same sort of thing. What, I'm curious how, how, how you'd answer that. Yeah, no, I, I don't agree. I mean, I think whenever we can demonstrate that information and knowledge of an individual uh, improves, you know, their outcomes, and in the future, it's going to improve our chances of actually preventing illness, which is the ultimate goal. Um, those are good things. And, you know, I don't see this as a too much information or cramming issue whatsoever. Uh, there is that potential, but when it's, when it's used appropriately, uh, I think it can become invaluable. So um, how should we as uh, responsible professionals decide when something's ready to transition from the laboratory, if you will, to the clinical setting? Yeah. Um, well, this is, of course, highly specific on, on the, uh, the individual and the condition of concern. Uh, so let, let's say a perfect example is today a person gets a prescription. Does that prescription, is it right for that person? Is there a potential for, you know, a horrible side effect or of the drug not even working? And there are many drugs today that we could do a quick genotype to determine that, and we're not doing that. And that, of course, gets me highly frustrated. And, you know, just to add a little bit of color to that, um, a commonly used drug, Tegretol, a carbamazepine used, mm -hmm. of course, for a lot of different conditions, um, for seizures. In, yeah, yeah. Um, that drug in, uh, in Taiwan, you can't get that drug without a genotype mm -hmm. that says that you're not going to have a, near, a potentially fatal adverse effect known as you know, Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Mm -hmm. Well, in the U.S., no one who gets that drug gets a genotype. Right. And, you know, the chances of getting that, 
you know, potentially fatal adverse effect, which could be preempted, is one in a thousand. And there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people taking that drug, getting new prescriptions all the time. So this is something that, we, an example of we have information, we're not using it, and uh, it's really unfortunate. Yeah, so, uh, you know, people have talked about um, the idea that uh, the entire classification scheme or taxonomy of diseases is going to be rewritten. Um, you know, we're both aware of disease descriptions like consumption and miasma and things that were used to describe diseases as if they were real uh, a century ago, and uh, we now ridicule them and talk about prostate cancer and other diseases. I'm curious as to what you think uh, we'll be talking about in, in the uh, in the next dec- decade once uh, genomes are routinely sequenced. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that that is, uh, you know, a key point going forward is we will indeed uh, have genomic data on most people, and it's obviously still going to be an option, uh, you know, years from now. Some people will, will not want that and bucket. But for the most part, we're going to have this information very early on in one's life, and that is going to be in so many ways uh, pivotal to guiding uh, the not only the, the proper treatments but the, the prevention strategies, and it gives us an edge that we never had before. And really one of the most exciting things is just last Friday it was announced that, you know, with this USB-size sequencing device mm-hmm. that you can plug into that. a laptop, this so-called Minion from Oxford Nanopore. I mean, this took the world by surprise. I wrote about it in the book, but I thought it was still five years off. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it happened all within a year. Um, so it, this is an amazing uh, jump in our sequencing capability, which will be transformative. But I think the key point is not to look at it as an isolated sequencing of DNA. It's just part of a panoramic view, high definition of each human being. Things that the tools that we never had before, and we practice all these years at a population level, whereas now we have the tools to really uh, practice medicine at the individual level. So we're going to wrap up. I just wanted to maybe you could close with a quick description of uh, what you see personal, personalized medicine looking like, maybe as a sort of an anecdotal description of uh, the patient of the future. Well, I, you know, I think... Um, it's, if we can get this uh, going in high gear, we will see a far more precise, efficient, uh, participatory, um, and, and ultimately preventive form of medicine. So it's, it's very exciting, but the problem is the medical community is just so darn uh, resistant to change. If we get this moving, I think it's going to rely on a consumer-driven story here. Um, prescriptions won't be given without um, knowledge of whether they'll work in advance or, you know, induce a serious side effect. We won't have uh, in the future, you know, uh, the whole issue of blood pressure not being controlled because we'll have that on a beat-to-beat basis all archived in one's phone. Diabetics, glucose will be monitored, uh, you know, minute by minute. And, in fact, pre-diabetics, of which there are a billion on the planet of people, they could actually have their diabetes prevented by uh, having lifestyle modification because their phone will be giving them their glucose basically all the time. So there's all sorts of exciting new ways that each person will have access to data, information, knowledge that in partnership with their physician could make an enormous difference in their future health. Well, great. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today, and uh, 
I look forward to uh, seeing your book. Hey, thanks very much. Great to chat with you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.